This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. The idea of the multiverse, a hypothetical group of coexisting multiple universes, has long been a staple of science fiction books and movies. But the theory actually is grounded in bona fide science. It's been gathering momentum amongst cosmologists for several decades, but what exactly does the theory say, and what evidence is there to back it up? In this episode, we're joined by the Astronomer Royal and Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, Lord Martin Rees. He tells us about his thoughts on the possibility of the existence of multiple universes, what parallel universes might look like, and how our universe evolved to produce the ideal conditions for life. Okay, so we're talking about the multiverse, and this is a concept that's much beloved by science fiction writers and filmmakers, but in fact, it's a bona fide scientific theory. So before we take a a deeper dive into this idea, could you just lay out what the basic idea of the multiverse is for us, please? Yes, well, I'd say that physical reality in our conceptions has been getting bigger and bigger. If you think back a few centuries, then uh, we had the idea the Earth was the center of the universe. Uh, then Copernicus gave us the picture that uh, the sun was the center of the solar system and the Earth was just one planet. And then in later centuries, we came to realize that our sun was just a star. And we realized that uh, many, many stars and that our Milky Way galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies which are in the observable universe. And uh, we have this picture of our universe, which is expanding. And that's about 13 billion years ago. It was in a very hot, dense state, and it's cooled down and uh, uh, formed galaxies, etc. And we're going expanding for a very long time, perhaps forever. So we are in this uh, aftermath of the Big Bang, as it were. But the next step is that perhaps our Big Bang wasn't the only one. Perhaps there's another Copernican revolution beyond the one uh, that's uh, reduced the size of the Earth compared to our concept of space. Perhaps there are many Big Bangs. And this is a concept of the multiverse. And there are many uh, possibilities for a multiverse, uh, which is great fun to discuss. So you mentioned there the Big Bang. Just for the listeners that aren't quite clear on what that is, can we just briefly explain what that is? Yes, indeed. Um, If we look at... uh, uh, galaxies a long way away, uh, then they are moving further away from us all the time. They're receding. The cosmos seems to be expanding. And so if you reverse time and extrapolate back, 
then that implies that everything was closer together in the past. And if you extrapolate back to a time which we can now pin down to be about 13.8 billion years ago, everything would have been squeezed on top of each other, very, very high densities. And there is evidence that the universe did indeed start off in a very hot, dense state. The main evidence comes from something called the cosmic microwave background, the fact that all of space is full of microwaves coming from all directions, uh, which are the um, afterglow of the hot, dense beginning of our Big Bang. Everything was hot and dense, hotter and dense than the center of a star. It expanded and cooled, but these, uh, this radiation is still around. It fills space. It's got nowhere else to go, and it's now these microwaves pervading all the space. So we've got fairly good evidence that our universe started off very hot and dense about 13.8 billion years ago. How far back can we extrapolate? We can extrapolate back with some confidence to when the universe had been expanding for just a billionth of a second, a nanosecond. And the reason we can't go back, you might say, why can't we go back into the first nanosecond? The reason for that is that in the first nanosecond, every particle had more energy than we could produce in the biggest accelerators, like the Large Hadron Collider in CERN in Geneva. And so we lose our foothold in experimental physics. We don't know what the conditions were. But after the first nanosecond, things had cooled down enough that we do have some evidence that the universe did come from that dense state. So we can confidently go back uh, to this early state. And that is tremendous, because when I was a young scientist just starting, it wasn't clear that there was ever a Big Bang at all. There was an idea called the steady state theory, that the universe existed from everlasting to everlasting, always in the same condition on average. But we do think there was a Big Bang. Now, it might seem it's not much of a loss not to be able to discuss the first nanosecond, but it turns out that many of the most important things that happen, laying down how the universe is expanding, what it consists of, etc., in terms of matter, radiation, and mysterious dark matter, and all that. All that was determined in this first tiny, tiny fraction of a second. And so it's um, a bit of a mystery how the universe really began, and was there really a beginning. But to link to the subject of the multiverse, one of the issues is whether right back at the very beginning, at a time when our entire universe, our entire observable universe, was squeezed to the size of a tennis ball, and to put it in perspective, when the universe was a nanosecond old, it was about the size of the solar system, but we're going back much, much, much further. Um, and at that time, the physics was very exotic, but some ideas about the physics suggest that not just one Big Bang, would form, but lots of others would sprout. There'd be a whole lot of Big Bangs forming. And the uh, main proponents of this idea is a physicist called André Linde. He has the idea, what he calls eternal inflation, which is that the universe is getting bigger and bigger. But that's not just more uh, galaxies, etc., but more and more Big Bangs. So this is a, a further Copernican revolution, extending still further our concept of how large physical reality is. So that's uh, briefly why we talk about the possibility of other Big Bangs apart from our own. So you mentioned that you called it a, a, like a, you compared it to the 
ideas of Copernicus, which is really interesting. And, and you mentioned that earlier in your studies, they had this idea of the steady state theory. So sort of when and where and how did this idea of the multiverse originate? Well, there have been speculations in science fiction, of course, going back a long time. But the um, fact that we can talk seriously about the early universe really has only been the case for the last 40 years. Um, but in the last 40 years, there have been lots of speculations about the very beginning, this first tiny, tiny fraction of a second. And then people realized that one possibility is that the physics would allow not just one, but many big bangs to occur. Uh, it's been talked about for 40 years. It's still speculation and may always remain so, um, but uh, it's certainly consistent with uh, some popular ideas in physics. So you mentioned uh, Big Bangs. In, in this theory, do all of the universes within the multiverse have to start with a Big Bang? Well, in, in the particular theory, they would. Um, but as you say, there are other theories of sort of parallel universes, uh, which are not quite like that. It's rather like um, if you imagine uh, a, a population of ants on a sheet of paper and another population of ants on a parallel sheet of paper, then if those sheets of paper were infinite, then the ants would think they're in infinite universes and they might not be aware that there was uh, another population of ants in a parallel universe, as it were. And one dimension up, um, then um, there are some theories which say that uh, we are in our universe with three dimensions of space, but just a tiny distance away from us, there could be another three-dimensional space separated from us by a small amount in four dimensions. That's an example of another kind of, uh, of multiple universe. Um, but the most popular idea is the idea called eternal inflation, which is uh, many big bangs all originating uh, from some hot, dense beginning. So you mentioned that eternal inflation. So that's the this idea of cosmic inflation. So what exactly are we talking about when we when we're talking about inflation? Well, inflation is the uh, idea that the universe expanded very fast initially and got got very big. Uh, there are fairly good reasons for taking inflation seriously. Um, it does explain certain phenomena we can observe, in particular some details of the uh, microwave background radiation. So the idea of inflation is taken seriously by a lot of people. But it's only some variants of inflation which allow the multiple big bangs. The so-called eternal inflation is a particular idea, um, and um, whether it's right or not depends on the appropriate physics at that time. And uh, the trouble is that we don't know the physics at this very extreme state when everything was hugely compressed, essentially because it's far from any conditions that we can reproduce in a lab. So I think one concept that's sort of baked into the idea of the multiverse, at least as I understand it, is that it in some way provides an answer to the question of why our universe is so finely balanced that it has the conditions necessary for life. I mean, is that, what do you think about that? Is that an argument that you find compelling? Well, I mean, I think it's um, quite compelling in that uh, uh, there are uh, some apparent sort of fine-tunings um, of our universe. Uh, it's exaggerated, I think, by some people, but it's easy to imagine uh, universes uh, which are counterfactual and in which you can't imagine any complexity evolving. But perhaps we could talk about one or two of these. The question then, though, is if there were these other big bangs, would they all be governed by the same physical laws? Uh, would they all have the same gravity, the same 
masses for the atoms and all that. Uh, so would they all cool down to a universe uh, that uh, uh, was rather like ours? And um, we, we don't know. That's possible. But it's also possible, and much more interesting, that they could be different. I mean, the most obvious differences is that they may um, start expanding at different speeds. So some may, for instance, um, uh, collapse quite quickly. And then, of course, there'd be no chance for anything complicated to happen. Or some might expand so fast that gravity never gets a foothold and everything just flies apart, and those stars or planets can ever form. Um, but even if we have a universe which um, is able to somehow form things like stars, then uh, we can imagine that they'd be very different if some of the other important numbers in physics were different. For instance, uh, gravity is a crucial force, of course, in um, holding us down on the Earth and holding stars together, etc. Um, but it's a very weak force. It's a weak force in the sense that if you take two atoms and hold them close together, two protons or something like that, um, then there's an electric force between them, but it's also a gravitational force between them. But the gravitational force between two atoms is about 40 powers of 10 weaker than the electric force. And so if you're a chemist thinking about the structure of molecules, you think a lot about the electric forces between them, positive and negative, etc., because they determine its structure and whether it's a bound molecule or not. But you don't think about the gravity compressing the whole uh, molecule. But of course, if you imagine building up bigger and bigger structures, then electricity has both positive and negative particles, the electrons and the protons, they more or less cancel out. So the electric force on any big objects more or less cancel out. Um, but gravity, as it were, always has the same charge. It adds up. So if you imagine building up bigger and bigger structures, let's start with a, a sugar lump, then a human being, and then an asteroid. Okay, then gravity getting stronger, but it's still not very strong. But when you get to something as big as a planet, then gravity is strong enough to make it round. And when you get up to the size of Jupiter, it's strong enough to make the planet round, but also start squashing it. So the center gets up to high densities. And then something 10 times bigger than Jupiter gets hot enough to become a star. And so uh, in very big objects, bigger than Jupiter, gravity is able to dominate and crush them. And all stars are in a state where there's a balance between the pressure of their hot interior and the gravity. And so gravity is uh, important then. But the key point is that because gravity starts off with this handicap of 10 to the power 40, then you've got to have a very big object in order for gravity to actually win. And that's why planets are very big compared to atoms, um, because they've got to be big enough that the, uh, uh, the, that the gravity actually overwhelms the uh, other forces. And, and so... Uh, if you could imagine a counterfactual universe where gravity wasn't so weak and you do the thought experiment of building up sugar lumps and then human beings, etc., uh, then things don't need to get so big before gravity starts crushing them. And uh, there could be stars in this hypothetical universe, but um, in a sense of gravitationally bound fusion reactors, which would shine, but they'd be much smaller. You wouldn't need to 
pack such a big set of, of atoms together in order to get a star. And so stars would be much smaller and much less long-lived. And so I think we can say that if we had a, a universe where gravity wasn't as weak as it is, then uh, you would not be able to have uh, as much um, space and time as is needed for evolution of life to happen. Um, you, you find that the stars didn't live very long, objects as big as us would be crossed by gravity, etc. So although gravity is not finely tuned, it's got to be very weak. And so that's, that's one example of a basic number, the strength of gravity, known by the capital G as the physicists, why that number must be a small number uh, compared to others. But you could imagine changing other things. If you think about the atoms themselves, then the fact that atoms bind together to make the elements of the periodic table, helium, lithium, carbon, oxygen, all the rest, that depends on a balance between two different forces. The electric force, uh, which tries to push all the nuclei apart, and another force called the nuclear force, which uh, packs them together. If there wasn't a, uh, a fairly close balance between those two forces, you wouldn't have the uh, elements, the famous periodic table of a hundred odd elements. And we might, for instance, just have hydrogen. In fact, I, I wrote a little paper recently about what I call the nuclear-free universe. This was a universe where gravity was the same, and so um, stars could form, but um, there'd be no nuclear energy, and uh, there'd be just hi just hydrogen. And uh, if it was just hydrogen, there could still be stars, um, but um, there'd be no no interesting chemistry, and therefore almost certainly no no complexity and no life. So if you looked at that universe, then I like to say it would bear the same relation to the actual universe that a marble statue does to a real human being. You still, still have things which, are, um, which look like stars and galaxies and even giant planets, but they're just, just made of hydrogen. And um, this uh, is an example of where there's a tuning between the so-called nuclear force that holds complex uh, nuclei of elements like carbon and oxygen together, um, and um, and and the force of electric of ele electrical force which drives them apart. Um, and incidentally, I think I should mention uh, I think one of the most beautiful ideas in in astronomy, which is the ideas about how the atoms we are made of were formed from pristine hydrogen. Which in the Big Bang, the uh, emergent material doesn't contain any oxygen or carbon or iron or anything that we are made of. That material is all made by nuclear synthesis in stars. When, when a, a star is shining, it's getting its fuel by nuclear fusion, turning hydrogen to helium, and then helium into carbon, and then carbon into oxygen, etc. Um, and when a big star ends its life by running out of fuel, it explodes as a supernova explosion and flings back into space the uh, debris which it was made of. The inner part may collapse to be a neutron star or black hole, but the outer part is flung off. And that uh, material will go into interstellar space and then it will form in its interstellar cloud and maybe condense into a new star because uh, stars in our Milky Way are forming all the time and they're dying all the time. And so uh, in 
our galaxy, a star like the Sun, is not a first-generation star. It formed from gas in interstellar space already contaminated by the debris from earlier generations of stars which had lived and died. And so um, we have the marvelous idea that we are linked to the stars in a more intimate way than even the astrologers thought, in that we are made of uh, masses of long-dead stars, or if you're less romantic, we're the nuclear waste from the fuel that made stars shine. And indeed, this idea was first suggested about 60 years ago by uh, Fred Hoyle, who was my predecessor as professor at Cambridge. And he first realized this, and it's been worked on ever since. And um, uh, we can now say which kinds of stars produce particular um, chemical elements, and also why oxygen and carbon are common, but gold and uranium are rare, but how these all came to be in our solar system. So this is a wonderful story. And of course, it's because of this, these processes that we do have now all, all the chemical elements of which uh, all living things are made. And uh, if you tuned the nuclear force differently, none of this could happen because uh, no uh, element other than just simple hydrogen, one proton, would be stable. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So when we're talking about the universes within the multiverse, so is there an infinite number? And how, how do we know that? What's the, th the thinking behind that? Well, of course, we will never know the difference between infinity and very large number. There's certainly thinking which suggests, even if we take just our Big Bang and its aftermath, uh, that could be a lot more extensive than what we can see. Because when we... Uh, look at distant galaxies, they're receding from us, and at a certain distance, through tens of millions of light years, beyond that, they disappear over the horizon, which is actually rather like an inside-out version of what happens if things fall into a black hole. In the expanding universe, where we now know the expansion is actually accelerating, then distant galaxies will um, uh, eventually accelerate away and uh, disappear from view. They f fall over the horizon. But that's not the edge of everything any more than if in the middle of the ocean, uh, the horizon around you um, is the end of the ocean. And so most people accept that the aftermath of our Big Bang extends a lot further than we can see. So there's lots of unobservable stuff, unobservable galaxies beyond the horizon. And so uh, that, which are quite good arguments, indicates that um, the universe is bigger than the observable universe. But then, of course, that's just the aftermath of our Big Bang. If there are other Big Bangs, uh, then there's far more still. And uh, none of this is ever going to be in, uh, in principle observable. The, if galaxies are accelerating away from us, uh, they'll never come into view if they're already expanding away beyond the horizon. Um, and uh, uh, ditto, uh, we can't have direct evidence for the, for the other Big Bangs. And so this will never be more than a theoretical concept. But that doesn't mean that it's um, metaphysics. It's now speculative science. And we might one day have a uh, 
a theory, string theory is the most popular uh, idea now, which can describe the physics in its first tiny, tiny fraction of a second when the laws are set up. And if we had such a theory, which could be corroborated by observations we can make in our universe, in our low-energy world, uh, then we would take seriously its other consequences, even when we can't observe them. I mean, it's a heresy to think we've got to be able to verify observationally all the consequences of a theory in order to take them seriously. Let me give you another example. We take quite seriously what Roger Penrose and people tell us about the inside of black holes, even though we can never observe them, because we've got a theory, general relativity, which has been tested and vindicated in other contexts. So because we um, know the theory works in many contexts where we can test it, we're prepared to take its prediction seriously even when we can't directly observe it, like the inside of a black hole. And likewise, we may one day have a theory which unifies gravity and the other forces and which uh, um, explains many things we can observe. And if that theory predicts the uh, idea of the multiverse, like Andre Linde proposed, uh, then it will um, be... Uh, it, it would be a reason for taking it seriously as a possibility, even though we'll never be able to observe them. Yeah, so sort of following on from that, you said that the idea has been sort of gathering momentum. So how how sort of popular is it at the moment? You know, what sort of proportion of cosmologists support it, you know, are behind it? Well, of course, one shouldn't take the majority of viewers being the right view. It's certainly taken taken seriously by by a number as a possibility. I mean, I think if you ask me, then uh, I'm open-minded. I don't think you've missed this. Um, it's, a, it's a speculative idea based on serious uh, assumptions that could be correct. Um, and so I think we should take it seriously. But it'd be a long time before we can actually understand this better because um, string theory, incidentally, is a theory which says that space is much more complicated than what we see. We think of space as three dimensions of points, but according to string theory, every point in our space, if you magnify it enough, is a tightly wound origami in five more dimensions. Um, so the space is very, very complicated, and uh, and the, the critical scale is much, much smaller than atoms, and so very hard to, to check. I think, incidentally, that uh, the mathematics of string theory, which is geometry in 10 dimensions, is the kind of thing you may have to await um, uh, computers like, well, Deep Mind could play chess and go much better than any human. And likewise, there may be machines which, given the, um, the rules and the axioms of this 10 dimensional geometry, might be able to work through its consequences in a way that no human mind ever could. And if the um, machine spews out at the end something, true about the standard model of low energy physics, then we take it seriously. We wouldn't get the aha insight of having understood the, the theory, but we would know that uh, it had some validity and we would take it seriously. So so that's what might happen in, in this theory. But at the moment, it's um, just speculative and it's become a bit more, bit more serious. And I think um, uh, I organized two conferences, one in 2001 and one in about 2008 on this sort of thing. And um, certainly the second one was taken more seriously than the first one. And um, to give you another anecdote, 
uh, I was on a panel with uh, Andre Lindy and some other people, um, and the chairman of this panel um, asked us at the end, the question was asked me about how much would you bet on the, the multiverse, and the chairman asked, would you bet your goldfish, your dog, or your life? And I said I was nearly at the dog level. Linde uh, said, well, he'd spent 20 years working on this model, so he almost bet his life on it. So he took it very, very seriously. Um, and um, when uh, this story was told to uh, Stephen Weinberg, one of the greatest uh, um, theoretical physicists of his era, uh, he took the quite seriously. He'd happily bet Martin Rees's dog and Andre Lindner's man on this theory being correct. Some people think this is something to be poo-pooed as not real science, but I think it's just one of the many, many things in science which um, we can't yet understand and maybe will be forever beyond our understanding because just as a monkey can't understand quantum theory, there may be deep aspects of reality which the human brain can't understand. So do we have any theories on how these all these separate universes are somehow... I don't even know if simultaneous is the right word, how they're able to coexist. Well, I mean, it's not clear how they do coexist because there's no common measure of time between the different ones. Time in each one, I think all you can say is they're, that uh, they're all part of physical reality in, in, the, in these models, and, and that's the case. Um, but but one, one thing I should have said is that many versions of string theory do have the idea um, that there are many different kinds of empty space, different vacuum states, and in each of those, the laws of microphysics are different. So the, uh, um, so the idea of having um, different atomic physics and different strengths of gravity, etc., um, which makes the um, lots of big bands evolve differently and not just be duplicates of each other, that is an idea which is uh, implicit in most versions of string theory, that uh, there are lots of different vacua. So that's concerning the, the, the birth of the multiple universes. The, birth, and the way they cool down, because they were, if they cool down like, I, like our universe did, they won't end up on this picture being governed by the same laws, with particles of the same masses and all that. And so some of them may become what I call the nuclear-free universe, where there are no uh, chemical elements, and some of them may have a gravity that's too strong for stars to be long-lived, etc. So you mentioned that our universe obviously has, has the conditions um, perfect for the evolution of, of complex life. So surely if we have an infinite number of other universes, it's possible that complex life forms exist within the other universes? Indeed, and of course uh, we can't say our universe is the best. In fact, uh, I've argued that if gravity was uh, ten times weaker, it actually is. This would be even better because then stars would last longer. They'd be bigger. Planets and human beings and things could be bigger without being crushed by gravity. And so there'd be more space and more time. Our universe may not be quite the optimum, but it's in the, um, in the group that does allow complexity, whereas there are some, like those I mentioned, where it's most unlikely there's any complexity. What we can't yet do is sort of uh, um, put any measure on the likelihood of, uh, of different uh, types of physics in different universes. Often what you see in science fiction films is people travelling between different universes within the multiverse and 
that really is in the realm of fiction, right? Well, I think they, they normally do this in the wormhole, don't they, or something like that. And of course, there, there are some, some models where there is a wormhole which looks like a black hole if you go into, into it, uh, then you come out. So uh, we, we, can't be, we can't be sure that that's impossible. Um, but, uh, but to go there and come back is, <laughs> is I think, unlikely. Mm-hmm. So just as a, like a slight tangent then, so how does this idea differ from the, the so-called many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics? I think a lot of people might think that they're, they're two sides of the same coin. No, no they are different. I mean, they're, uh, they're both serious ideas, but uh, you can have one or the other, or you can have both, really, because the, the many worlds interpretation um, is the idea that um, when the universe when anything happens, which um, has two op- options, uh, then um, in fact the the universe bifurcates, and uh, both options are, are taken, and we find ourselves in one of them, not the other. This is again a logically consistent model, um, but this, of course, is even more complicated, really, because uh, if every time anything happens, the universe doubles in size, then. Uh, then within a fraction of a second, you would have zillions of, of different u- different parallel universes. So um, this is um, actually even further from common sense uh, than the kind of um, multiverse that I was talking about. But but again, um, it's um, it's a way of thinking uh, of quantum theory and uh, and mysteries there, which is also taken quite seriously. And I think I would say that even though it does seem an extraordinary idea. We've got to realize that um, uh, it seems extraordinary to us and because our, our brains haven't changed very much since 50,000 years ago. Our ancestors roamed the African savannah and uh, cope with the everyday world. And it's rather amazing that we've got as far as we have done in understanding the, um, the micro world of particle physics um, and the, um, the grand scale world of the cosmos uh, where we don't expect our standard intuitions to apply. Yeah, so I think the message really then, by way of summing up, is that we need to keep an open mind. Uh, I think an open mind on the, uh, on things like that. Um, and of course, the question is whether physicists will be able to probe these mysteries. They're clearly making, making progress all the time. But I think we do have to be open to the idea that there are some mysteries which uh, uh, humans will never be able to understand. Um, just as I said, monkeys can't understand quantum theory. But of course, um, in in a cosmic perspective, then we shouldn't be too depressed even by that, unless we are sort of human chauvinists, as it were. Because one thing we know that we know as astronomers is that um, we humans are the emergence from four billion years or so of Darwinian evolution from the first protozoa in the young Earth. But although many people think that we are somehow the culmination at the top of the tree, astronomers know that the future is longer than the past. The sun has got six billion more years before it dies out, and the expanding universe may go on from far, far longer than that, almost forever. And I like to quote Woody Allen, who said, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. We've got to bear in mind that um, we are not the culmination of intelligence. The the big question, really, which fascinates many of us is, is there other intelligence out there already, um, or is it going to be our remote descendants 
who solve these problems, and also will there be a transition from um, flesh and blood brains uh, to electronic brains? Because there may be limits to the power of uh, um, the sort of brains that uh, organic entities like us have, and so maybe the machines will take over in the far future. That was the Astronomer Royal, Lord Martin Rees. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. The current issue of BBC Science Focus is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines, or download a digital copy from your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.